This is Baffled with David DeRoche, and this is a special episode. This is an investigative piece on the government's use of algorithms and how that technology often does more harm than good. So quick background on this, I reported this story as a freelancer back in 2019 for a company called the Department of Motion Pictures. They had gotten a grant from the Sundance Institute to develop a podcast pilot that focused on technology. And the podcast we made was called America Decoded. But in the middle of production, the pandemic hit and just like everything else, production slowed and eventually it fell off our radar. We did finish it eventually, but our collective steam was out, so I thought maybe we could run it here on this podcast as a special episode. So here it is, America Decoded's pilot episode, Forecasting Abuse. Millions of American children are abused or neglected every year. High-profile child deaths often end up with a spotlight on child protective services. That's because sometimes caseworkers knew there were problems in the house, but for whatever reason, they failed to act. Investigators located what they believed to be AJ's body buried in a shallow grave wrapped in plastic. Police charged his parents with murder. Child welfare workers had been called to their home before. Child Protective Services in West Virginia is in an absolute crisis mode. You believe if CPS would have done its job, Zayden would be alive? Yes, big time. Spokesperson for CPS that personnel action has been taken against a caseworker and supervisor in that case. CPS has played a big role in this. They've been called out to that home. More than seven times. Seven times that we know of. I blame CPS. I feel like there's more than could have done. Overwhelmed, understaffed, under resourced, poorly trained. Those are just a few of the things you hear about Child Protective Services. It would be hard to say there's a job out there with higher stakes. They're protecting kids. And if they can't protect kids, what then? What other options do we have? Well, we are in the age of big data. Information is everywhere. So what if we could use all that data to try to prevent kids from getting hurt? That could be a solution, right? Here's a little song about predictive analytics. If you want to learn, you got to listen to the lyrics. Listen to it twice, maybe you can memorize it. It goes a little something like this. Yep, that's a song about predictive analytics. The rapper is former Columbia University professor Eric Siegel. He's one of the most vocal supporters of this technology. He even wrote a book called Predictive Analytics, the power to predict who will click, lie, buy, or die. In simplest terms, predictive analytics is a computer program that uses data to predict future behavior. It's a tool that could be especially useful today, since so many kids are stuck at home and not getting out as often to see other people. So this is how it works. A call comes in to Child Protective Services. Hello, may I help you? The social worker types up the name of a parent who's being accused of hurting their kid. The computer then looks at a ton of public data. Have either of the parents been arrested? The computer sees that. Has anyone else ever called or complained about the parents beating or neglecting their kids? The computer knows. 
Have the parents had their heat turned off because they didn't pay their bill? Well, I could see that too. Many of them are being screwed by this algorithm, at least potentially. That's Kathy O'Neill. In 2009, she quit her job on Wall Street and later wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. She now runs a company that audits algorithms, which are the mathematical formulas that make the predictions. Algorithms don't lie. So if you gave me access to your algorithm, I will be able to find out whether it's sexist, racist, classist. That's right, an algorithm can be racist, sexist, and classist. How's that possible? Well, when you start using the past to predict the future, all the problems of the past, like biased attitudes and decisions, they start to bubble up. That's because biased human beings are the ones who create the actual data points. It's people who make the decisions to arrest someone, or to turn off someone's heat, or to call the cops on someone for whatever reasons we want. And that call becomes data. And all those decisions become more data from more predictions, and the bias deepens. It's a vicious cycle, and it's left a lot of parents wondering, is a computer going to eventually take away my kids? The software is taking the human element out of it. So they're reacting to statistics and not humans. Stephanie's been in the Connecticut system for years. She's had two children taken from her at different times. But that was before her state started using a predictive analytics system. Kia's also had her daughter taken from her. That's why I say they need to be careful with this program that they're doing because it can damage a lot of children and families if they're just pressing that button and saying, okay, well, you're not fit. I'm David DeRoche, and this is America Decoded. It's a podcast about how the government tries to use technology to solve centuries-old problems. But do any of these solutions have unintended consequences? What happens when big data decides who gets medical treatment, or who goes to prison, or keeps their kids? Big data is everywhere, and it's hard to argue against using it, so how do we move forward? This episode is called Forecasting Abuse. It's a clear and cool morning in Watertown, Connecticut. Not a cloud in the sky. Stephanie Priestman meets me outside, talking a mile a minute about her case. It's hard to keep up. It's clear that she's been through a lot with Connecticut's Department of Children and Families over the years. It's a very nerve-wracking thing. Um, my 14-year-old is here. He, he calls. <laughs> but for the first time in three and a half years, he went to the nurse. He picked this day. In 2014, the state took away her son, Lance, the one who came home early from school today. He was in state custody for nine months. He's back at home now, but DCF is back in their life. That's because Stephanie and her husband got into a screaming match, and he was arrested for breach of peace. They have four kids, and one's a toddler. Someone, a neighbor probably, called DCF. Plus, Stephanie's husband has a history with the police. Let me talk to you. Oh, yeah, so if you want to come in, and I'm going to show you around before they get here, so you know where to place yourself. Today, a DCF investigator is coming to see if her kids are safe in the house. Each state handles child protection a little bit differently, and since the coronavirus pandemic, process remains in constant flux. But the basic process is this. A call comes in, the call screener evaluates the claims, the screener can dismiss the call, or they can connect the parents to services, or they could mark it for investigation. Stephanie's no stranger to this process. She says the trick is to somehow make your kids feel comfortable around DCF workers. It's a horrible situation, but you end up like having to create a home life around these people. And while you're doing that, you need to teach your kids how to like be honest and like if something happens and, and all those things, but in the back of your mind, you're just like, oh Lord, <laughs> you know. Stephanie leads me into her house. A few uneaten bits of spiral macaroni are left on two plates. 
Okay, so it's lunchtime. Oh, Nothing nice. Nothing <laughs> We have the toddler room. This is like our slumber party room. Oh, like my, my husband Stephanie didn't tell DCF that I was going to be here, so I agreed to keep my microphone off when the investigator arrives. Right, but I want to generally minute. come like 10 to 15 minutes late just okay. to screw with you. And she's here. All right. <laughs> All right, so the DCF worker is arriving. Are you going to meet her outside or do you um, want me to come outside with yeah, you? Yeah, I usually do. Let them in. Um, I want them to see the welcoming because... Do you want me to come out with you? Where do you want me to... Be? Yeah, you stay right here. I'm okay, going to just talk to her right one second. Okay. And I'm going to... So Stephanie is now meeting her outside. I'm going to cut the recording. Okay, just to be clear. It's not like DCF pushes a button and the computer says, go investigate, or take the kids from the home. There are still people involved every step of the way. At the time of our visit, Connecticut was using a predictive tool called Rapid Safety Feedback. It was developed by a nonprofit called Eckerd Connects in partnership with a for-profit company called Mindshare Technology. Let's step away from Stephanie's story just for a bit to talk about how this worked in Connecticut. It took DCF a while to agree to an interview, but we eventually connected with this guy. My name is Ken Misogland, and I'm currently the Bureau Chief for External Affairs for the Department of Children and Families here in Connecticut. Ken's been with DCF for three decades. He's no stranger to the scrutiny his department faces anytime there's a high-profile child death or abuse case. Eckerd came to Connecticut in 2016, and Ken says they brought them on board because they wanted to reduce child deaths and injuries. Here's how it worked, as Ken describes. The state, along with Eckerd, developed an algorithm based on information they've been collecting over the years from what the department calls negative experiences. The algorithm indicates how likely it is that a child might experience one of these negative outcomes in the future. So when a new case was referred to the department that was accepted and opened for an investigation, that case information was then fed into the algorithm. And if the current likeness of this case matched the likeness of a case statistics or case characteristics where a negative outcome already occurred, that would then trigger an Eckert review. Then a small team of state workers would review the case with Eckert staff to talk about next steps. The relationship included modeling and coaching from the company that Ken says was beneficial. So I think the model over the past three years has also educated and helped our staff look at cases in a way where we are hopefully now better at identifying safety and risk factors. Five, six months. They said, but she's going to be a smaller type, and she was a rescue. Okay, so let's go back to Stephanie's house in Connecticut. So when someone called DCF on her, the agency likely ran Eckerd's rapid safety feedback tool, which generated a risk score. Because Stephanie's been in the system and her husband's been arrested several times, it's likely that her score was high. But she doesn't know her score. At least not on this day. The DCF investigator walks in with a clipboard. She eyes me skeptically, but she doesn't object to me being there. She says hi to the kids, asks about the cat. She paces through the house, scanning the rooms. Stephanie tells the investigator about her husband, who's still in jail. The investigator asks questions. Stephanie answers. The investigator takes notes. Eventually, she lets me ask her questions, but she doesn't want to be recorded. Of course, I really want to know about rapid safety feedback, the predictive analytics tool. But the investigator doesn't say much about it. She doesn't know Stephanie's score, which isn't that unusual. Investigators might be more aggressive if they knew a family had a high score. If you ask Stephanie about Eckerd's software, though, she definitely has something to say. Families have problems. 
and kids have problems. So when they come in and we're here to investigate you on a phone call, you know, and all these things, and the, the software is taking the human element out of it. So they're reacting to statistics and not humans. And you can see the approach they come at you with too. Like, it's not human. And they're almost like working at an agitated rate with you. Stephanie also wonders, why didn't DCF respond to her case earlier? She suspects it's because she's white and lives in a suburb. Her family's not wealthy, but plenty of her neighbors are. You see, a big part of the problem with predictive analytics is something called referral bias. People call DCF on poor families much more often than on wealthy ones, and black families are reported more frequently than white families. Predictive algorithms look at the frequency of reports when they calculate risk, and Stephanie's been in the DCF system for years, so she wonders, why wasn't she flagged as a higher risk? I have prior DCF, big time. A husband that's been involved with the criminal justice system seven times. I just asked my attorney that, and he said, yeah, you should have been a higher response. So you think they should have had you at a higher risk because of the history? Well, if the software is saying you're prioritized or coded by prior history, the criminal justice system, all of these things, wouldn't you want to go and act real quick? Stephanie says she thinks she was given the benefit of the doubt solely because she's white and lives in a good neighborhood. Months after our interview, her situation's calmed down. Her husband was placed on probation, and they're now in couples counseling, she says. DCF didn't take her children away. Kia's experience with DCF, though, has been different. I've had a couple different run-ins with um, DCF. The first one I ever got was um, at a grocery store, and it was a ridiculous call. Kia also lives in Connecticut and has two children. She asked that we not use her full name to protect her privacy. While Stephanie, who's white, wonders why her situation wasn't seen as a priority by the agency, Kia, who's black, is frustrated by a series of run-ins with DCF that she says started with an incident at a grocery store. She had her son in one of those shopping carts that looks like a car. My son was acting up and he wanted to take the actual cart with him home because it looked like a car. And I popped him on a leg and a lady in Wallingford started crying. My son's not crying. He's three. He's not crying because he still wants to take the cart. But she started crying and the cop was going to let me go. But she made a big deal about it. So I had to um, sit in the cell for one day and my mom had to take the kids because this lady decided that She thought my son was in danger because he got a pop on his leg. And that's what started my first case with DCF. And I felt like once they investigated and all that stuff, they just took it to a whole new level. That whole new level included losing custody of her children for a time. Run-ins with DCF continued after her kids came back home. This time her daughter left class because she didn't like the ponytails in her hair. Kia said the school called DCF first. The school, instead of calling me like they usually do, they called DCF and told DCF that my daughter was upset because of her ponytails in her hair. So I said, you used the DCF hotline number to call DCF about ponytails when there's kids being stuck in cabinets, kids being put into placement and being starved. You wasted that phone line call on a ponytail. That makes no sense. And they didn't, they didn't see anything wrong with calling the DCF worker. In fact, the DCF worker said, why did they call me? Just ask them what's going on. DCF didn't do anything about the ponytail incident. Kia says the caseworker told her the whole thing was silly. 
but her examples show how black families and white families are often treated very differently. Small things can become big problems, and that worries Kia, especially when it comes to predictive analytics, or what she calls the program. So God forbid that day when that lady went berserk, the the thing would have said, oh, she's an unfit mother. I would have had no kids because the program decided that I was an unfit mother, even though I'm not. So that's why I say they need to be careful with this program that they're doing, because it can damage a lot of children and families if they're just pressing that button and saying, "Okay, well, you're not fit. Well, did you really dissect the situation to see what was the reason for certain things to happen? Or did you just say, let's see what this says. Oh, they're not fit. Let's pull the kids. That's not fair. Now, again, the algorithm doesn't automatically remove kids from their homes. There is still a process where people are involved. But still, that doesn't seem fair, Kia says, especially for black families. So one mother wondering why DCF didn't intervene in her family situation earlier, and another wondering why she keeps getting referred to the agency, and both wondering what role rapid safety feedback played. Naturally, we reached out to Eckerd to see if they could tell us more about their predictive tool, and went back and forth with a PR guy, but they didn't want to talk. But David Jackson would talk to me. He's an investigative reporter with the Chicago Tribune. He and a colleague dug into Eckerd's work in Chicago back in 2017, as they were investigating a child's suspicious death. Well, the the child caseworkers I uh, talked to knew very well about this program, and they found it um, alarming and shocking. Basically, they were starting to get pings and emails and notifications that children under their watch were at a high risk, um, not just of harm, but of death. One of the caseworkers I talked to uh, read me one of the messages that she got about two kids that were in her care. It said, please note that the two youngest children, ages one year and four years, have been assigned a 99% probability by the Eckert Rapid Safety Feedbacks metrics of serious harm or death in the next two years. And you can imagine being a a caseworker and trying to oversee a a home, a troubled home, and getting a message like that. What do you do? It's shocking. It's alarming. Does it mean you're supposed to take the kid out of that home? What step do you take with a message like that? The Tribune learned that Eckert had predicted that thousands of kids would likely die within two years. They also found that there were children who had died but were rated as low risk. Chicago ended up dropping Eckerd. At the time, the head of the city's DCYF told the Tribune that, quote, we're not doing the predictive analytics because it didn't seem to be predicting much, end quote. A year before the Chicago story broke, Connecticut hired Eckerd. The state paid the company more than $500,000 a year, according to Ken Meisegland, and it tied up five full-time staff members who worked with the Eckerd team. That cost, in both time and people, is one of the reasons the state dropped the program in January. But it wasn't just the money. When we looked at the outcomes of families that had an Eckert review and their percentage of repeat maltreatment, as compared to the outcomes of the families that did not have an Eckert review, those instances of repeat maltreatment in the Eckert and the non-Eckert families did not show a huge statistical difference. In other words, as in Chicago, Eckerd didn't seem to be predicting much. So there are a few things going on here. First, there's the bias in the data because people are biased. And then there's just bad data science. 
Eckerd blamed Chicago for giving it bad data, and Chicago blamed Eckerd for not predicting much. But what actually happened? Well, it's hard to say. As a private company, Eckerd doesn't disclose how an algorithm actually works, so we can't say one way or another. But here's the thing. Predictive formulas are sometimes better than the human systems that they're replacing. That's what mathematician Kathy O'Neill says. But the only way to know that for sure is to test the algorithms, which, unlike people and much like a young George Washington, cannot tell a lie. Algorithms actually are their own tattletales. And this is kind of like the cool thing. The cool thing is algorithms don't lie. So if you gave me access to your algorithm and to the population data that it's being applied to, I will be able to find out whether it's sexist, racist, classist, you know, blah, blah, blah. I will be able to figure that out because I'll just run my tests and the algorithm will do exactly what it does. Whereas if you go into a workplace, an HR at a big company and say, hi, are you racist? They'll be like, no, we're not, you know? Algorithms don't lie. So algorithms actually are faithful to their own bias. Again, it's not the algorithm itself that's racist. It's the people who call DCF on black families more often than white ones who are racist, or they're at least biased against people of color. Now all those biased decisions have become data, and all that biased data is now being used to predict the future. And problems with predictive programs are surfacing constantly. Researchers found that a popular algorithm used in the healthcare industry was biased against black patients. Prison sentencing algorithms have been shown to give harsher penalties to black defendants compared to white ones who committed the same crimes. And in 2017, Amazon scrapped a predictive hiring program that favored male applicants. But the companies and public agencies that use these algorithms generally consider them successful. They watch them work and they work well. They do exactly what they're designed to do, says algorithm auditor Kathy O'Neill. If you ask a data person who built an algorithm, does your algorithm work? They'll always say yes. Why would they have put it into production if they don't think so, right? So then the second question you ask is, how do you know it works? What do you mean by success? And they'll almost invariably say it's accurate or it's efficient or it's profitable. Okay, great. I get it. It works according to that metric. That's all you care about. But that's not all that everyone cares about. There are a bunch of people here and many of them are being screwed by this algorithm, at least potentially. And who are they, first of all? And what is failure for them? Most of these predictive tools are just that. They're tools. They're not supposed to replace human decision-making. They're supposed to simply inform decisions. But so many things remain hidden. Companies hide behind trade secrets to avoid disclosing how their algorithms work. But not everyone is so secretive. Hello, may I help you? If you've ever called Child Protective Services, chances are you talk to someone like Susan. Have you ever tried counseling with your daughter to try to figure out why she's behaving this way? Susan's a call screener for the Department of Human Services in the greater Pittsburgh area. She's quite literally on the front lines of child protection. People call her for all kinds of reasons, like this mom who's at the end of her rope with her teenage daughter and threatens to kick her out. Oh, well, we don't want you to put her on this. All right, bye-bye. Okay, so this one she hung up. I have an out-of-control 14-year-old. I need her out. She can't live here anymore. She runs away. She's disrespectful. These are a dime a dozen calls. The caller didn't leave her name, so there's not really anything Susan can do, which might be a good thing, because seconds later, her phone rings again. 
Hello, may I help you? We're not using Susan's last name because she works on some pretty sensitive problems. Like this one, where a caller says that a dad is sexually abusing his kids. And who is doing the sexual abuse? Okay, and what leads her to believe that Jen is sexually abusing these children? Sitting in her cubicle in what's basically a basement, Susan takes notes using her own shorthand style, CN for children. There are photos of kids she's helped taped up along her cubicle, and she's got those big colored Christmas lights strung up along the top edge. It's weird to see such a cheery thing like that, listening to her talk about someone molesting kids. And then again, maybe that's exactly the kind of thing you need. All right, thank you very much for calling. Bye. So now I'm going to look up these people and see if we have any activity with any of them. I don't know if you were able to gather. When she says she's going to look them up, what she means is that she's going to run a software program called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. It's similar to the Eckerd program used in Connecticut, except this one was developed by the local government agency, so its algorithm is actually public. Allegheny software searches over 100 public data sets instantly, and then it gives the call screener a risk score. A 1 is low risk, and a 20 is the highest risk, and it triggers a mandatory investigation. When I ran the score, it came out to be a 12. Okay, so right now it's medium risk, and it came out exactly where I thought it would, in that range. And I'm hoping that the supervisor agrees with me and will assign a caseworker. Oh, thank you, Beth. Years ago, Susan would have to pull records manually to see the family's history, but that would take time. With her office handling over 18,000 calls a year, time is a luxury. And sometimes, children's lives are at stake. There is no time. So a tool like Predictive Analytics looks really appealing. Allegheny County has been lauded by advocates and critics alike for transparency around this Predictive Analytics tool. Because it was developed by a public agency, you can look up all the variables used by its algorithm. And the agency has worked hard to get community buy-in. But it's certainly not perfect. I'm David. Hi, David. Pat Gordon. Pat Gordon, nice to meet you. Likewise. Give me one Thank you for your time this, no, no, no this morning. Pat Gordon is also a call screener with Allegheny County. She sits a few cubicles away from Susan. Pat, who's black, is a bit more concerned than her white colleagues about bias in the data. But for her and the other call screeners, it's simply a tool and not a prescription. Does the score ever make you question your judgment? Yeah, sometimes I, I, sometimes we disagree with each other. I mean, but that's part of the process, I guess. Yes, yes. I mean, and the, the goal is to trigger us to think and look through things, and which we do anyway. It's just you know, daily when I run across something that seems not to coincide, I'll I'll look back at what the allegations were. The point is for it, it to do its job and for me to do my job. And it's not you know, necessarily that we should always agree. But just like DCF in Connecticut, the calls coming into Pat's office are also disproportionately concerning families of color. It's that referral bias we talked about earlier. And multiple calls against one family can increase a score. So people with a grudge against a family could call up numerous times and artificially bump up that score. And think about this. The screening tool also uses police bookings to calculate a risk score. In 2016, Pittsburgh police also began using predictive analytics to predict hotspots of criminal activity. Police already arrest black people more frequently than whites. That means black neighborhoods are more likely to be patrolled, and the cycle continues. Pat Gordon is aware of the bias in her system and in the other systems that generate data for the screening tool. 
She says she thinks about it whenever she screens a call. I think we do the best we can, though, knowing that. And part of handling that is not forgetting that we do have that concern. Because being aware of it helps you Absolutely. navigate those calls. That right. Probably those right. And I think, I think everyone in this room, you know, in, including supervisors, are aware that that concern is real. I mean, are, are we perfect? Probably not. We're pretty good, though. I mean, do you ever worry that the tool itself could exacerbate this bias, could make it worse? I mean, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, but, but, you know, I mean, it would be interesting, you know, since we've had the tool and before we had the tool, if we look at that, I'm not, I'm not sure if what the difference would be or if it would be tremendous. It's a question I put to Mark Cherna. He runs the Allegheny County of Human Services, which developed the screening tool. We don't go looking for calls. They come to us. So referrals are here either way. And the tool has absolutely nothing to do with the referrals. And certainly there is implicit bias and we have, you know, a disproportionality in terms of what calls we get. We think we're making some impact on reducing disproportionality going forward. In fact, the, the uh, evaluation said that. A recent review of their data did show that it was decreasing the gap between black and white families being investigated. But that's only because they're looking at more white families. That is, they're not looking at fewer black families, which most people agree is the root of the problem. Mark, however, says it's more complicated. I think there is validity that there are too few Caucasians in because of the implicit bias that, you know, oftentimes folks say, well, it's an accident if it's a white family and it's abuse if it's uh, an African-American family. So you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that the issue of bias is not necessarily that we're over-identifying black children as needing services. Is that the bias? Is that we're under-identifying white children? It's a complicated issue. It's not a, a, say, black and white issue, you know, in terms of that kind of thing. And, And what I'm concerned about is keeping kids safe and keeping, providing services that families may need to, in order to keep their children safe. So if we get calls and there is needs to do that, then I think that's what we go out and do and not make statements of, well, there's too many, you know, there's an overrepresentation of African-Americans because there's less. But a report from his own office doesn't quite agree. In 2017, his office stated, quote, it is clear that community members and mandated reporters are referring black and multiracial children more than what would be expected based on their share of the county's population, end quote. Then there's the question of poor families. Many of the data points used by algorithms to predict future abuse or neglect are considered proxies for poverty, points out Kathy O'Neill, the algorithm auditor. But I think probably the worst is like, your child could be removed not because you've been abusing them, but because of so-called neglect, which could simply boil down to your heat got turned off, your kid gets taken out for a couple days, your heat gets put back on, your kid gets returned. Like it's not abuse. It's poverty. Mark Turner admits that most of his clients are poor. You know, just in dealing with poverty, I mean, probably over 90% of the families that come in the system are poor. I mean, that's the biggest correlation around this stuff. So that's just the fact, you know, of what comes in. How you deal with that is, is the important thing. Allegheny officials recognize their data isn't perfect, but in their mind, they have to use it. It's there. It's available. Allegheny County has seen some improvements. Investigators are going out on more high-risk cases and staying home on lower-risk ones. But even in Allegheny, where transparency and improvement are paramount, biased data continues to exist. Kathy O'Neill feels for the agency. The Allegheny County uh, situation is different, right? Because 
they're not bad data scientists. They're data scientists who are struggling to do a good job and an ethical job in the context of extremely biased data. And I have sympathy for them. I have sympathy. I have so much sympathy. And one of the reasons I have sympathy is because child abuse is a problem. Since predictive analytics has significant implications for black families, we wanted to hear their stories. But many were hesitant to talk. They're afraid that speaking out about their cases publicly would make their lives harder. Kia, the black mother we talked to earlier, shared her story because she wanted to help others who are in her situation. A lot of people get scared. Being scared, you tend to do opposite of what you will regularly do. And you say, why did I do that? Just be yourself. Be yourself. If you really didn't do anything wrong, then live your truth. You didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing to be afraid of. She says sometimes state welfare workers can help people in her situation, but she's not so sure about handing over more control to a computer program. So that program, um, mm, that's a crazy program to try. You go back to a computer and the computer tells you whether or not I'm suitable to be a parent to my child. Well, technology's taking over. It's raised all kinds of questions about who owns data and what does transparency look like? And how valuable is transparency if the algorithm itself is so complicated that only PhDs in math can understand it? And there's no guarantee that the data gathered by one agency won't be used by another. In Allegheny, they said they would definitely share their data with another public agency for the right reasons. But who's to say what reasons are the right ones? Some people are trying to figure that out. In Pittsburgh, there's a task force that'll be focusing on governmental use of algorithms in the Pittsburgh region. But the fear of this technology is real. Maybe computers aren't taking away kids today, but in 100 years, who knows? Isn't that the nature of technology? At first, we fear it, then we begrudgingly accept it, and eventually, we embrace it? Thanks for listening to Forecasting Abuse, an episode of America Decoded a production of the Department of Motion Pictures and Stories of Change, a partnership of the Sundance Institute and the Skoll Foundation with support from IFP and Quinnipiac University. Our editor is John Dankosky. Our mixers are Ben Cruz and Henry Bellingham. Our producers are Elizabeth Lodge-Stepp and Michael Gottwald. The executive producer is Josh Penn. Research by Kate Osborne. Fact-checking by Jacqueline Rabe Thomas. Additional reporting by Colleen Shaddix. And special thanks to Emily Jampel. I'm David Roche. Thanks again for listening.